Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Jess Gregory. Jess is an Australian disability advocate living with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and all the usual comorbidities. Despite the intensity of her symptoms forcing her to leave her first career as a classical musician, she has found fulfillment in using her experiences to assist others who are facing similar challenges. In 2021, she started Delicate Little Petal to platform the experiences of patients living with rare, complex, or undiagnosed diseases. The name stems from her childhood nickname, which teasingly referred to her fragile, easy-to-bruise skin, which she would later find out was from her undiagnosed EDS. Above all, she is eager to raise awareness of the flaws in the Western modern medical model and how patients with chronic conditions often fall through the cracks. She seeks to help medical providers better understand how they can support these patients and also how patients can help themselves through self-advocacy and adaptive living techniques. She also encourages society to broaden their understanding of what a disabled person should look like, championing greater and more diverse representation of invisible and dynamic disabilities. So Jess, I'm so glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me and for the lovely introduction. Yes, um, I have myself learned a great deal from all of your content over the last uh, few years. So really appreciate what you're doing out in the world um, to raise awareness about hypermobility syndromes in particular and all a lot of different things that are related to some of these invisible disabilities that we'll talk about some more today. I'd love to start out by asking you to share some of your personal experience with hypermobility and in a nutshell, how it has shaped your life. I know we could, we could talk about that all day long, all of us, but I'd love to get a little insight into your experience. Absolutely. So looking back, hypermobility has shaped my entire life. And for the first 20 or so years, it shaped my life without me even realizing it. My earliest memory of my hypermobility affecting me was when I was about four years old because I dislocated my elbows trying to do mm -hmm. the monkey bars at school. Mm -hmm. But when I started um, being more involved in advocacy and talking more to my family about my experiences, my parents told me that they have memories of me dislocating things from 18 months old. So wow. the story goes that I was eating a mango and the juice was dripping down my arm and my mom picked up my arm to try and wipe some of the juice off and the elbow just slipped right out. So mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny to think back on the things that we normalize sometimes when we don't know any different, yeah. but you know, I was relatively okay until I hit puberty. That's when I started having a lot more frequent luxations in different parts of my body and 
a lot of chronic pain. And that was a really difficult time for me, not only just because of the physical side of the pain, but because I really didn't get the kind of education I needed to thrive with hypermobility. So I was told that I had hypermobile joints, but that was about it. Like it was very much like, well, you're hypermobile, so you're going to have to work harder than other people to keep your joints in their sockets. Go exercise. Goodbye. See you later. That'll be a hundred bucks or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had no idea about the spectrum of hypermobility, about the different comorbidities associated with it, about the fact that it could possibly be due to an underlying connective tissue disorder. And given that at the same time, I was already starting to have problems with things like my blood pressure, I was bruising like crazy, as you mentioned in my introduction, to the point where my parents were worried that I was being bullied and was covering it up because I had just such severe bruising at times on my arms and legs. And yeah, so I was able to uh, get into some Pilates classes and that like gentle stabilization exercise did, it definitely helped me survive the situation, but, you know, I didn't really make a ton of long-term progress. And that was really hard because I felt like I was very aware of not physically being able to keep up with other people my own age. And I also felt like the people around me, especially at school, weren't very aware of hypermobility and I didn't have the knowledge or the language to explain my situation to them properly. So that was quite isolating, but I more or less did figure out how to get by. But when I got into my mid-20s, that's when things got really, really difficult for me. So I was pushing myself to be very active. I was going jogging, I was doing resistance training, and I was also at university, I played the trombone and I wanted to be a full-time classical musician in an orchestra, which is of course quite a physical job from the actual playing to carrying the instrument and accessories and stuff around with me all day. So the irony is that despite being so active, it wasn't those activities that were causing me problems. Like, you know, I would go to the gym or something or sit and play in the orchestra for like six hours a day, but then I would dislocate my shoulder rolling over in my sleep or something ridiculous like that. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have similar stories. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I started to deal with some really crippling neck and back pain after certain activities, even if I didn't necessarily feel like they were vigorous enough to be causing that. And because of the industry I was in, music industry in general doesn't really have the best culture around physical and mental health. And there's a lot of like, I suppose, pressure to network through socializing, through partying and consuming large amounts of alcohol and things like that. And definitely not showing any signs of physical weakness because you wouldn't want people to say you can't hack it as a performer or that maybe you have bad performance technique and that's why you're always injured or always tired and in pain. And so I felt a lot of kind of internal pressure to cover up the sort of challenges that I was facing. And that was really reinforced by the fact that, again, I just didn't get the support that I needed from medical professionals. Like with the example of 
the shoulder dislocation in my sleep, I felt at times like I wasn't, my stories weren't really believed. Like people sort of thought maybe it was something else embarrassing that had happened and I was trying to cover it up with that story about it happening in my sleep because I didn't want to say what was really happening. And that made it really hard. I just didn't have that open, trusting communication with professionals. And I was also made to feel like it was just all about me not exercising enough. And all I bloody did at that time was study work and exercise. (laughs) So the, the issue really looking back was that I wasn't being given exercises that were actually tailored to my specific situation and problems. So yeah, so I thought that would be a great time to move countries. (laughs) So that was when I moved from Australia to Belgium. Uh And, you know, I just felt like it was something I'm really glad that we did. And it was something that we had been planning for a long time. But, you know, obviously looking back, it was a really difficult time to make a huge life change like that. But I just didn't feel like I had a choice because everybody was saying, well, there's nothing really wrong. And it's all just kind of within your control with how much you strengthen your body so that the physical and emotional strain of that move really pushed me into a rock bottom place unfortunately I was actually bed bound for about six to nine months like about six months after we moved and my doctor and I basically think now that I ended up developing fibromyalgia around that time at least in part due to the fact that I got trapped in this state of feeling very unwell, not being given access to proper pain relief at that time and just pushing my body again and again way outside its limits. And of course, there are still things we don't know about fibromyalgia and there are different factors that contribute to it, but that is definitely at least in part what happened in my situation But the silver lining of all of that was I was able to stumble across a great GP in Belgium. And even though she didn't know very much about hypermobility and the related comorbidities, she listened, she took time with me, and she was willing to invest the time in figuring out what was wrong and supporting me to get back on my feet. So This was also during the height of the pandemic, so it did take quite a while. But yes, in 2021, I ended up being diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and fibromyalgia, also POTS and mast cell activation disorder. And we also suspect possibly ME-CFS, but that's not actually a recognized diagnosis here, but that's topic for a whole other time. (laughs) And I ended up going into a hospital rehabilitation program here in Belgium, which truthfully was not fantastic, but it gave me a bit of a starting point. But what has really got me into a much better situation now is doing a Pilates class that is specifically adapted for people with hypermobility and working one-on-one with a physiotherapist and a pelvic floor therapist and progressing slowly and steadily, like at my own pace and really learning how to start listening to my body again after such a long time of ignoring it. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. So I definitely want to hear more details about what you have found that's working better for you now, but Mm -hmm. let's put pause on that for a second. Cause I want to go back and ask 
what you found between uh, moving from Australia to Belgium, as far as the medical systems of those two countries are concerned, I'd love to hear a little bit about the differences. It sounds like at least you found a great GP in Belgium. Yes, I would say like, look, definitely neither system is perfect. And I think there are pros and cons to both, but certainly in my situation, I feel like the system here in Belgium suits me a lot better because I feel like there is more of a holistic approach to healthcare here. I feel that doctors are a lot more willing to prescribe things like physiotherapy and pelvic floor therapy without you having to ask. And they're a lot more knowledgeable about those Um, I suppose you would call them like allied health type professions and how they help in different situations. So that's something that's helped me a lot. And there's also a lot more insurance coverage for those treatments here. I have had similar challenges with certain professionals, like maybe not always taking seriously what I have to say. So you sort of still have to pick through and find the correct doctors for your situation and who are willing to invest the time in people with complex and chronic illnesses, which can still be really hard. But I would say that the overall uh, strike rate I've had for want of a better word has definitely been better here. Yeah. That's great. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how your experience has really led to your advocacy work. And I know that you have I think you've developed some materials and processes to support other patients who are dealing with similar conditions, help them self-advocate out there in their own medical odyssey that we all tend to go through when seeking these types of diagnoses and trying to understand these multi-system symptoms that we have associated with things like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and the others. Yeah, that's right. So delicate little petal was at first at least almost entirely inspired by my own experience in those past couple of years leading up to 2021. So I wanted to create a space for people who were undiagnosed or similarly lost in the medical system because they had a condition that doesn't have approved treatments or maybe they have multiple illnesses with competing contraindications and needs and they weren't getting the support that they needed from the Western medical model because Mm -hmm. I noticed that for me at least and a lot of other people that I've now met, that period in which we're undiagnosed or perhaps recently after diagnosis is often emotionally the most difficult time And so it's ironic that often that's the time that we have the least support, both formally in terms of governmental and institutional help, but also from society. A lot of people are very threatened by the idea that some illnesses don't have treatment or they're not easily diagnosed or there are situations where you can't get the support you need from the medical professionals who are supposed to help us and they are very resistant to accepting the idea that someone they care about has an undiagnosed or untreatable illness. And I think that it's really important that we start to change that. But in the meantime, we can still also be there for each other. And that is the main goal of Delicate Little Petal. 
So my first articles were a lot more focused on those personal experiences, navigating the healthcare system. And this also branched out into me writing a little bit more about my day-to-day life, because I'm sure you've heard it from people that you've worked with that perhaps their healthy friends and relatives maybe ask them what they do all day, for example, if they are taking a break from employment or school or something like that because of their health problems, because they don't see the medical admin and the appointments and dealing with perhaps the emotional fallout and maybe even trauma of navigating that system. You know, unfortunately, it's not all lattes and watching Netflix like people think (laughs) that it is, you know. So, yes. And from there, I branched out into writing more about adaptive living techniques and advice. So Mm -hmm. things about how to self-advocate both like just in an appointment context, but Something that people have also been really interested in is how I deal with emergency situations, like if I ever need to go to the ER, because the needs of somebody with a complex illness um, might be quite different in that situation. And there are also some added dangers for us if we're not able to clearly communicate what our additional risks and needs are in that situation. And I also do things like product reviews or just like talking about self-management skills that I've developed that make things easier for me. It's not all focused on hypermobility. Some of it is obviously specific to symptomatic hypermobility and hypermobility spectrum disorder and things like that, but also try and focus on the overarching issues that kind of bring us all together in that situation. And then more recently, I've started a series called Allies Toolkit, I noticed that a lot of people like me were having quite frequent periods of burnout with trying to balance advocating for ourselves and others along with our own treatment. And I realized the importance of bringing our allies in and giving them practical steps that they could take to help support us in that cause. That's amazing. So that's a lot you're doing. (laughs) And thank you on behalf of all of us. For all of that work that you have been sharing, I've been really interested in some of your product reviews, and I'd like to have you explain to listeners, how would you describe what is dynamic disability, first of all? And then I want to talk about some of the mobility aids that you um, share about in your resources. Definitely. So dynamic disability is something that is being talked about a lot more recently, especially in the online space, which is great, which is that a disability that does not necessarily affect you in the same way or to the same level on a day-to-day or even hour-to-hour basis. Mm -hmm. And hypermobility and EDS is the perfect example of this because not only is it a spectrum of how much it affects people in general because of a whole variety of factors, But you may have a situation where at one point you're quite active and maybe you need to be being a bit more careful because you are more prone to things like joint dislocations or soft tissue injuries, but you're living quite normally. And then maybe you're going to have a time period where you have a serious injury and your needs are quite different. Maybe you need to use a mobility aid, take pain medication, Maybe even there are going to be certain buildings or activities that aren't accessible to you anymore because of that. And then maybe you develop or have a flare-up of one of your comorbidities associated with that, like mast cell disease or POTS, and maybe you aren't even going to be well enough to leave the house. And that's something that can fluctuate not just over the course of your lifetime, but depending on 
the support you have, how well managed your condition is, and just unfortunately still some factors that are not totally understood by medicine yet that might fluctuate up and down just on a week to week basis too. I know it definitely does for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a helpful concept and is a new concept for a lot of people. I think it's helpful for people who are not affected by some of these conditions to understand, but also really important for all of us who are affected by them to understand too, that <clears throat> I call it the game of whack-a-mole, you know, where there's, there are going to be things that pop up and you try to whack them down and another one yes. pops up and you try you to use whack that it um, analogy in your book, right? Cause I remember oh. reading that and I felt so seen with what you said about how you get one symptom or problem under control and then something else pops up and oh it's so frustrating especially in that early stage where you're maybe you're trying to figure everything out and haven't necessarily figured out that all of your symptoms are connected yet too right and I think it takes some time to figure out that that whack-a-mole game actually is how it's going to be that is not ever going to stop we will hopefully get more skilled and efficient at addressing the things that pop up but part of getting our minds around mm-hmm. having these conditions is understanding that, that this is a unique body that is likely to have flare-ups and things come and go over time. So it's really about managing it and understanding that it is dynamic, basically. This idea of dynamic disability that really makes, I think it, it makes it easier for me to understand my own condition, but definitely people on the outside who aren't living with this it helps them to understand, well, why is it so different day to day, month to month? Because that can be confusing for people. It can. Actually, I've had a few private conversations with members of our community that have been prompted by posts that I've made, like them saying that they think that something like a cane or a rollator would really help them sometimes, but they're scared to start using it because they know that they won't need it every day and they're scared about what people who see them will say if they see them using a mobility aid one day and not the other. And that's makes me so sad. We have to continue to work on changing that perception because it's very sad to realize that so many people aren't using the tools that they need to live full and pain-free or at least low pain lives because effectively they're worried about not being believed by other people or worried about being accused of being dramatic or attention seeking or things like that. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people have internalized those Mm -hmm. messages and it takes a long time for us to realize, oh, my situation warrants some accommodations, you know, because this has been normal for us for so long that it takes a while. I think that's been my experience anyway took a long time for it to occur to me that, oh yeah, I can actually employ some techniques to make this easier, (laughs) to make this more comfortable, but it takes a while to get there. And there's a resistance to making accommodations, I think. Um, But that dynamic nature of these conditions also really makes it difficult to plan on anything and Mm -hmm. to maintain um, a type of employment that looks normal to people. Like Mm -hmm. I am pretty high functioning, but I also am self-employed. And the biggest reason that I maintain self-employment, and I am very reluctant and trepidatious about changing that, even though there are some benefits, is that I don't know if I'll feel well enough all the times that I need to feel well enough to perform 
um, a job that someone else is more in charge of. So it really makes things tricky. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. A lot of people I know actually have turned to self-employment for that exact same reason. Yeah. So let's talk about some of your experiences with um, self-care and specifically movement and exercise, because you mentioned during the times when you were having a lot of difficulty, you were exercising a whole lot, but it just wasn't the right type or dose or frequency or whatever it was that you needed at the time. But now you found some other ways of moving. Definitely. I think the biggest one for me was I had to stop comparing myself to others before I could make the other changes that I needed to, because naturally I really gravitated towards swimming Mm -hmm. and also towards things like Pilates and yoga, which looking back were basically like the perfect sports for the type of body that I had been given. And yes, of course, there's still a need for personalized input from professionals in certain situations, but those are some of the best possible low impact sports that I could have naturally gravitated towards. But because I saw myself not keeping up with my peers physically, and also I think things have changed a bit, but sort of felt like those sports weren't really respected. And I needed to be doing things like running and things like that to be quote unquote fit. I really pushed myself to A, start running and B, start doing things like resistance and circuit training. And I was able to maintain that for a while. And there absolutely are people on the hypermobility spectrum who with the right support would be able to do those things. But in my situation, it wasn't the right choice. So yeah, not comparing myself to others helped me. I have gravitated back to things like Pilates and hydrotherapy now, which is much better for my body, but also recognizing that you do have a different body with different needs to maybe some of the other people in your life. And that's okay. You don't need to be doing the same things as other people. You don't need to be progressing at the same rate or having the same like times as them if you're competing in a sport that's timed or something like that, for example. Particularly because it can be a little bit more difficult for us as hypermobile people to gain muscle. A lot of us struggle with low muscle tone, difficulty engaging our muscles properly. And we also do decondition a little bit more rapidly sometimes than other people. I, something that I look back on and just cringe at now is when I was in my early 20s, I got told that because I was deconditioning very, very quickly and having trouble making progress, I got told not to take any days off exercise. And I quote, even if I was sick, which looking back, I can't believe a professional gave me that advice that really messed me up good for a while. Yeah, it's kind of um, but I, I love to hear your opinion actually as someone who actually works with people in the fitness space. But what has worked for me is going, okay, I accept that I am somebody who is going to decondition faster, but life happens and there are going to be times when I am sick or stressed and maybe there's going to be a week where I can't be as diligent with my exercises as I would like to be. But I'm going to think about other ways that I can combat that and minimize the harm that don't involve me just 
balls to the wall, pushing myself and injuring myself. (laughs) So things like just being mindful in my other types of movements. So if I am a bit more lax and deconditioned, I'm minimizing my risk of injury. Things like not just jumping back into my program where I was before, taking it back a few clicks so that I'm starting from a safe and stable place that's going to be sustainable for me. I'm not sure if there's anything you'd like to add to that before I move on to a couple of the other points I wanted to make about this. Yeah, well, I think those are are absolutely right on. Um, the bit about understanding that the deconditioning is going to happen more rapidly. So even if you miss a week, when we get back to our training program, we can't just pick up where we left off. This idea of progression has to be a moving target. It's, it's always a moving target. So we have to accommodate where we are and know that we will have moved back a, a couple steps. But if we don't go back, we will overdo it and we will either have more pain or more fatigue and we'll have a setback. And it's that boom and bust cycle of exercise that so many of us get caught in. We were feeling better, let's say after a, a little illness or something, we're feeling better and we overdo it. And then we are just in trouble for days or weeks. And it's to be avoided really at all costs, but it's like the hardest thing, that idea of pacing ourselves appropriately. Exactly. And I think that is so applicable to other aspects of life with hypermobility too, because of course, outside of our exercises, there are other types of movement that uh, can be challenging for us, or even if they're not challenging, they're still contributing to the overall load on our body. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are obviously living with um, pain or fatigue for various reasons. And it's a similar thing with that fatigue, even going boom and bust with something like mental effort. Mm -hmm isn't always great for us long-term either. So it's very, very important. It is. I'm just thinking about a day where on Sundays I do my grocery shopping. I also try to prepare most of my food for the week. And that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Those two activities are really taxing. So I have to be aware. There's just like activities of daily life. We have to pace those out as well. And if there's going to be a big expenditure day, then we need, need to plan on some recovery time the next day or two that type of thing. So it's not just around exercise. That's exactly right. And then the only other pitfall that really sticks out to me that I've noticed is sometimes the approach to recovery, particularly when it comes to stretching. I think that there are generally two takes on stretching and hypermobility, and they're both bad in my opinion. <laughs> the, you know, sometimes professionals who don't know a lot about hypermobility and see all our tight muscles encourage us to really do a lot of static stretching. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but loosening those muscles, which are working hard to hold our joints in place without complementing that by giving them other types of support through strengthening and active recovery can lead to further problems. And then some people who are a bit more knowledgeable about hypermobility fall into the camp of no stretching whatsoever, mm-hmm. which is also a little silly in my opinion. <laughs> I know that you had a very specific approach to stretching that you talked about in your book, which I thought was really interesting. So maybe I'll let you take over for your opinion yeah. on the well, best way to do that. I would say I agree with you. I think either of those extreme positions is usually not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, 
bendy people tend to like stretching. I think for a number of reasons, it feels good for a lot of people because it gives them some sensory input in their bodies that our bodies need and, and often need more sensory input in order to help us land in our bodies and feel what's happening in them. And so stretching is one of the ways that we can get that input. But I think that a lot of passive static stretching at end range is problematic, but that's one of very many ways we could stretch. We can mm -hmm. stretch in dynamic ways. We can stretch in more active ways that are going to um, give us some different sensory input before we get to end range, which is where our problems usually occur. So making our stretches more active, for example, by contracting the muscle that we're stretching a little bit, like resisting the stretch a bit. Sometimes that's called isometric stretching. That can yes, be really I forgot the word yeah. for it, but that's the one that that was my big takeaway from that mm -hmm. section of the book that's really helped me. Yeah. Yeah, great. Because we can back away from end range, but then resist the stretch and feel a lot. We're just putting tension on our tissues. That's what stretching is. So we can do that in a number of ways. We don't have to wait till end range to do that. And then my personal favorite way to stretch is by moving in and out of a position. Again, we're in charge of how far we go. So it's helpful to consider all the different ways we could stretch our tissues. And I think your point you made before that is really important. If all we're doing is stretching because we feel tight, and many of us do feel tight because we have chronically compensating muscle contraction to try to compensate for our decreased passive stability in our connective tissue. Our muscles are working really hard. They get fatigued, mm -hmm. they feel tense, and it leads us to want to stretch. But if all we're doing is stretching and we're not addressing the underlying issue, which is these muscles need to be stronger so they can help us, you know, help hold us together even better, then we're missing a big piece of it. So that's the main thing I would say about stretching. It's definitely not a terrible thing for bendy people to do, but we need to think about it with a little bit more nuance so that it can be a helpful part of an overall fitness approach. So can you talk a little bit about your current exercise or self-care routine that you're getting some good results from? Yes. So strap in because I do a lot of things at the moment. Okay. I have a lot of moles coming up to be whacked. <laughs> so the first thing that really helps me is I start off every morning with some heat. So I have an electric heated blanket, but not like one that gets folded around a mattress, like a, a handheld one that can be mm -hmm. moved. So I use that first thing every morning to get everything to relax and loosen up a little bit. And I also sleep with a U-shaped pillow, like one of the ones that is normally used for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that really helps me wake up with my body in a better state. I avoid the nighttime luxations in my shoulders and hips, and I get everything loosened up and ready to start moving. Then I do what I would call my small muscle group exercises. I do deal with quite a lot of laxity in my jaw and hands. So I have some little exercises that help me keep those in good shape. And I do those first thing in the morning because the morning is a little bit more of a challenging time for me health-wise. And those are things that are relatively low energy and I can sit in bed and do while listening to a podcast or something like that, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And that's a good way for me to start off my day. I do things like my Pilates classes and my general, I guess, larger muscle group exercises that are a little bit more like a workout in the afternoon when I tend to have a bit more energy and my blood pressure is a little bit more stable. And I try to be quite balanced with how I do that. So I try to work a little bit on 
each of the main muscle groups in my body. So a bit of core, a bit of shoulders, a bit of legs and glutes and things like that. And I take classes at Sheldrake Pilates, which is, it's an online studio if anyone's interested. And that's been really great for me because the wonderful teacher, Nicole Sheldrake, has some hypermobility herself and her partner actually also has EDS. So she's incredibly knowledgeable about the unique challenges that we face. And she has a lot of wisdom to pass on not just in terms of muscle strengthening, but also things like proprioception exercises and breath work and things like that. And there's a real focus on slow and steady progression, mm-hmm. which has been really great for me. Fabulous. Yes. And then I do have a couple of physical therapy appointments each week. I see a general physiotherapist. We do some exercises, but more for some manual release. I do despite my best efforts do still have a lot of trouble with tight muscles. And so I'm a big fan of dry needling. And I also do see a pelvic floor therapist for pelvic floor pain and bladder pain. And it's been really helpful for me to understand how that those problems actually fit into basically my overall experience of hypermobility. So I found that basically my pelvic floor was very sore and tired all the time. And I thought, oh, well, it's weak and I need to do, you know, exercises for it and stuff. But when we started working together and the therapist started analyzing the way I moved and things like that, I realized that actually that's not at all what's happening. My pelvic floor was constantly tight because my other muscles weren't always engaging in the ways that they should. And so my poor pelvic floor was just squeezing so hard all the time. trying to compensate for it. So for me, it's actually become a lot more about relaxing my pelvic floor properly and making sure that the other muscles that it should be working in conjunction with are all working properly. Right. So commonly the case, especially with the hypermobile Mm -hmm. population. And just like you said, we might assume that we just need to strengthen the muscles. But if we do that without understanding the whole context, we're missing the biggest piece, which is for so many of us, we have to relax first. We have to let go of all this extra muscle tension and guarding before we can effectively exercise anything. Okay. So we've got two types of PT each week. Is there more? (laughs) Um, Not in terms of specifically exercises, but as you mentioned before, I do use mobility aids Mm -hmm. and I do also use special pillows and adaptive equipment. Yeah. I think it's helpful for people to hear you know, this taking care of a bendy body is, I always say it's at least a part-time job. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, that is something that's really just not understood well enough, I think. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of things that are helpful for others to hear, which is consider the timing of your exercise. Like you mentioned, you wait until Mm -hmm. the afternoon to do more challenging or vigorous types of, of exercises, because that's when you have better energy. And that's really important. So all of this comes from you studying your own experience and and tailoring your whole approach to your specific rhythms and your specific needs. And that's one of the most confusing parts of managing hypermobility syndromes, I think, which is that everybody is so different and all of our approaches to exercise are person specific, even though we're going to end up with some guiding basic principles that make sense, such as the pacing issues, the starting 
slow and progressing really slowly and adequate recovery and rest during the exercise, after the exercise, all those things are always going to apply regardless of what kind of exercise modality uh, we're doing. That slow and steady progression may be the most important thing that I see people not do well enough. Mostly people meaning myself. (laughs) 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 It's so easy to overdo it when we're feeling Mm -hmm. really good. You know, on that day when I'm like, I can do more. So I'll do more and then I'll pay for it later. And so we're relearning these lessons, I think, until we get better and better at applying some of these principles. And I think a lot of us spend the earlier parts of our life being conditioned to lose touch with our bodies and our specific needs. And we unfortunately live in a world where things are tailored to the needs of like a very specific type of body Mm -hmm. and we feel like we need to conform to that. And so it can take a lot of work and self-reflection to, as you say, reconnect with what actually works for us as an individual person, rather than feeling like you need to go with the flow of what everybody else is doing or the rate at which other people are progressing. It's so hard to unlearn that conditioning that you mentioned. It takes a lot of time. And so we can just hopefully be gentle with ourselves as we're unlearning so much. Many of us are conditioned that if we have that 45 minutes or an hour at the gym, we have to get as much done as humanly possible. Otherwise, we're not using our time efficiently or something. But really, in most of our cases, especially as we're getting to know how we respond to different exercises, less is always more and then study your response and progress really slowly. You also mentioned dry needling has been really effective for you, which is great to hear. That's one of the techniques that I use in my PT practice. And okay, um, great. yeah, whenever possible, I stick needles in my own body. (laughs) (laughs) It took me some years to get comfortable with that concept, Ah, but it's so helpful. And of course I can't reach everywhere that I wish I could to do that, but when there are areas that I can kind of get myself set up and relax and apply that technique to myself, I find that it's very helpful too. And I do see that in a lot of my bendy patients as well. Not everybody, of course, responds you know, positively to our different tools we have in our toolbox, but that is one that seems to be quite positive for a lot of the bendy folks. It's interesting because it's not a particularly popular technique here in Belgium, and it can be quite hard to find people who will do it. Hmm. But I sometimes think that it can be really helpful, but unfortunately, I think some people are a little put off by the fact that there's needles involved and Mm -hmm. it's not always well executed by therapists. I feel like it makes a big difference if somebody is aggressive with how they insert Mm -hmm. the needles. I, I can't think of a better word for that. And when people kind of pulse the needle up and down, some people really are like, stabby stabby in there and that's not always very nice so (laughs) I totally agree I have in all my trainings have been needled up and down and the technique that I learned in in my training for dry needling was quite gentle but but you're right there are some different techniques to it and I do think it makes a huge difference how um, a therapist approaches that so there's this pistoning technique that you're describing that you kind of jab in and out, in and out on the spot. And in my experience, I just can't stand that. I can't stand receiving needling like that. I'm sure some bodies like it, but it's not how I would approach it. I think 
we have to understand that mostly what we're doing with any manual therapy technique is we're trying to coax the nervous system into letting go of some tension. And, and so if we aren't setting up a circumstance where someone feels very safe, this is going to be counterproductive. Yeah. And that's one of the things that comes with a nuanced understanding of mechanical reality of the body is that it isn't just mechanical. We're always dealing with more subtle features of this body. So Safety is key and someone feeling safe with whatever exercise you're doing, with whatever other treatment modalities that you're receiving, you have to feel that you're in a safe space and um, have agency. Yes, actually, there's something I would love to add to that because I have seen a lot of physiotherapists over the last couple of years and the person that I'm working with now that I have a very good relationship with actually didn't have very much experience with hypermobility. And they didn't know a lot actually even about the relationship between hypermobility and the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Mm -hmm. But the reason that he's turned out to be the best person for me to work with is he listens really well and has been open-minded about learning more about different techniques and is open to experimenting and getting the balance right for me as an individual. And that to me has been so much more valuable than maybe somebody who's read a book about it or has had the training related to hypermobility, but thinks that they're God's gift to the world and has the secret source that's going to fix everybody, you know? Totally. I know it well. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's that collaborative approach, a, yeah, team, exactly. a team approach right, that says, hey, I'm here to help, but you know your body best and let's learn about this together. And you're in charge of your body. Mm-hmm. There's not one way this is supposed to look and all of that. So that's a really different mindset. And hopefully over time, practitioners come around to that. I know plenty of practitioners certainly do hold that mindset, but you just got to find one. So yes. In my know. opinion, all of the best ones do across all different types of health therapies and medicine. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, there are, there do seem to be large parts of the field that still think that that's like a revolutionary concept that a professional patient relationship is a two-way street, unfortunately. Yes, you're right. I love hearing about your personal recipe. I'm so glad that you found these resources in your Thank in you. Belgium. Yeah, the PT, but also your GP. That's just fabulous. I hope that for every person living with um, EDS, HSD, and, and other chronic conditions. Me too, me too. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up for today? I think if there is one other thing I'd like to add to the conversation that we've had is I know we talked already a bit about my personal experiences and the journey to finding things that have worked for me and that personalized approach and the game of whack-a-mole. And I'd like to add on to what you said about how one of the trickiest things is accepting that that game of whack-a-mole to a certain extent is going to go on indefinitely. You know, maybe sometimes there's going to be more moles, maybe sometimes less But it's important to realize that while you have a role to play in figuring out how to tackle that situation, it's not your fault that you're in that situation. I know for myself that I not only internalized a lot of pressure to make myself better through things like exercise, but also a real sense of like, I want to say responsibility, but responsibility is not a bad thing. I suppose guilt or shame would be a better one that if something didn't go well, if I didn't make progress, if I had a setback, I was so hard on myself about that. And 
I am better to a certain extent, but it's still something I'm working through really even today. And it's so important to realize that this situation is really hard. It takes time to figure out what works for you personally. And unfortunately, there are a lot of external factors that are going to be outside of your control. And that includes the fact that the medical model isn't super well set up at the moment to accommodate and support people like us. So while it is really important to not lose hope and to be persistent and find the things that work for you, try to let go of that overwhelming sense of responsibility for being in the situation. It's okay to grieve that it's hard and be frustrated that there are things that are outside of your control. Absolutely. I love that. Beautifully stated. I agree with you 100%. (laughs) We, We definitely, especially in the fitness wellness spaces, there's tends to be a flavor of blaming and shaming people for having the challenges that they have. And like you said, some of it is just simply not under our control. We can yeah. do our best with what we know and we can't control all of it. So mm-hmm. that's a really great message for us to end on. I think Jess, tell listeners where they can find out more about you and follow along with what you've got going on. So please follow me uh, on at Delicate Little Petal on Instagram and Facebook. That's where I post all of my short-term content. So things like videos about adaptive living techniques and self-advocacy and also some fun, relatable moments about how uh, crazy it can all get sometimes. And then DelicateLittlePetal.com is my website where I post my long-term content. So things like product reviews and articles that are educational about things to do with the chronic illness and disability community. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Jess, for what you are doing out in the world. It is helping people. And I so appreciate it personally on my own behalf and on behalf of all the other zebras out there as well. So keep up your excellent work. And thanks so much for joining me here and sharing your experiences and your insights. No, thank you so much for having me and for platforming these important conversations. It's something that our community really needs. Yeah, I agree. And listeners, thank you so much for being here and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.